Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about the political crisis in Germany. A deep crisis has erupted amongst the German Conservatives and it is very different from previous crises like the Euro crisis and the refugee crisis because what we're seeing this time is Germany being torn apart by a bigger competition that is reshaping the whole of European politics. We'll get into details of what happened and where things stand on the infighting between Angela Merkel's CDU and the Bavarian CSU, their sister party, in a second. But what's interesting about this crisis is that it's not just the German Conservatives that are trying to come to terms with the shadows of the 2015 refugee crisis when their leader, Angela Merkel, opened the country's borders to about one million refugees, moving the party left of the political centre, as one of her internal opponents, Jens Spahn, has put it. But in fact, this crisis is very different from the last ones because it used to be a situation where Germany was an agent. It was one of the leading or at least critical players in the Euro crisis, in the crisis following the annexation of Crimea, but even in the 2015 migration crisis. What we're seeing now is Germany as a battleground for other great powers on the European continent to play it out. On the one hand, Emmanuel Macron in France is calling for Germany to be more pro-European, to have a leap forward into a deeper type of European integration. And on the other hand, is a coalition of the willing between her interior minister, Haas Seehofer, with other leaders such as the new government in Italy, the Austrian chancellor, and even Viktor Orban looking over from the... Hungarian uh, Republic at, uh, at Germany and trying to reshape German politics from the inside. Why don't we start uh, with Josef Janning, he's uh, head of our office in Berlin and a senior policy fellow at ECFR to give us the latest uh, in the crisis and also to talk about all the different bits of contact which um, uh, these different players have had with other European players. And then we're going to go around the European Union and look at it from different angles. Silvia Francescon, the head of our Rome office, uh, can tell us about the links with the new Italian government. Manuel Lafont-Hapnoui can talk to us about how things are seen from Paris, um, where uh, Emmanuel Macron is uh, preparing uh, a new approach with, uh, with Angela Merkel. In fact, the two have been meeting in, in the German city of Meseburg together. And finally, we'll go to Warsaw, where Piotr Buras, who is the head of our office there and also a senior policy fellow, can tell us how this looks from the uh, new populist forces, uh, the Orban-Kaczynski axis. So, Josef, why don't you go first? Uh, well, Mark, the essence of the conflict in uh, Germany, the essence of the conflict between Angela Merkel and Horst Seehofer is how to approach the key issue of controlling the flow of refugees and asylum seekers into the country. Um, the Chancellor has insisted that a solution to this issue can only be found on the European level because if it was done on the national level, it would have uh, immediate and far-reaching externalities on EU partners and would break down the entire system. 
Seehofer, on the other hand, has argued that Germany must have uh, a national instrument to control the flow, uh, while the CSU, and he personally, is not against a European solution, um, this could only be an added element. So uh, his insistence is um, that Germany needs to have the means uh, and the policy uh, to control uh, and its borders and reject uh, arrivals uh, at the border and send them back. That is, that is the core of the matter and, and since both sides have made their position, uh, they are essential. Uh, they are heading uh, head-on uh, against each other. For the time being, uh, the Chancellor has secured a standstill period of another two weeks uh, for her to explore uh, opportunities over the short term, uh, for example, via bilateral uh, arrangements with other EU member states where uh, refugees and asylum seekers actually arrive, and then, in a midterm perspective, uh, through a package of reforms that she is today um, discussing uh, and presenting together with French President Macron and that will have to be then discussed and put on some sort of track uh, by the next meeting of the European Council in June. And only after the end of June, early July, uh, she is willing to hold another round of discussions inside her own party, but also with the sister party, the Bavarian CSU, uh, to evaluate the situation. Seehofer has initially said that he would still prepare everything to uh, uh, put in place um, the federal police to be able to actually execute uh, his policy on the border, uh, but he has moved away from it uh, by saying that he, he's, he remains on his issue in principle, uh, but he will give, of course, the Chancellor the two weeks. The Chancellor's response has been uh, to make sure that there is no automatic um, uh, application of the Seehofer approach after that two-week period, but it is conditional to prior uh, talks and negotiations between the parties to the government. So this has all the elements that you need for a sudden breakup of the government coalition, which would then also mean it would be the end of the chancellorship of Angela Merkel. Um, as soon as uh, Parliament has found a candidate um, that could get a majority, but it would also mean the end of the political career of Horst Seehofer, who's under much pressure from uh, his own party base and from the Bavarian Prime Minister, his successor in office, uh, Markus Söder, who, who is now speaking in rather strong language uh, about Europe, which uh, is very similar to that of Viktor Orban. But what makes this, I think, quite remarkable is that for a number of months now, uh, Seehofer and Viktor Orban have been coordinating quite closely. They've met a few times. Um, Seehofer, when he was running Bavaria, invited Viktor Orban to, to, to come uh, to Bavaria. Um, and, but Seehofer has also had uh, contact with Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian Chancellor, since the, the, the debate started um, uh, heating up and Kurz called for an axis of the willing that would also involve Italy, which has changed its stance since this new uh, five-star and Lega government has, has come in. 
Have you ever seen anything like that before, Josef, in, in German politics? No, I haven't really. You know, Franz Josef Strauss, the legendary uh, chairman of the CSU and uh, a one-time finance minister, one-time defense minister, long-time Bavarian prime minister, he was always good for surprise moves. But these surprise moves then um, involved uh, a travel to Moscow or the willingness to, to give a two billion credit to uh, East Germany. But it was not directed as a sort of weakening your other uh, players in the German political context. I think this is a, is a very new phenomenon that we're seeing that the division between the two sister parties uh, which are not, not running uh, against each other uh, in elections, mind you. You know, the CDU does not campaign in Bavaria and the CSU does not campaign outside of Bavaria. So these two parties uh, have no other way uh, to articulate their differences by uh, fighting with each other because they never fight against each other in, in campaigns. But this time it is more ugly uh, and it is more damaging to all sides Possibly also because a number of the, of the players engaged behind the scenes are fueled by their aspiration to replace Angela Merkel as Chancellor. Now, it is, it is, to me, it is quite evident that Seehofer, even though he likes to sort of use his contacts to uh, uh, Orban or to Sebastian Kurz to sort of irritate uh, the political mainstream of his party, uh, he is not really out uh, to kill Angela Merkel politically, but he is under great pressure from Munich and from those that have been uh, succeeding him, that from those that would like to uh, succeed him in the chairmanship of the party, um, to take such a, a tough stand. So Seehofer is risking his own political future because if he wouldn't, uh, he would have been he would have been ousted by his own party. So. Um, we, let, we're going to come back at the end, I think, to what's going to happen in Germany. But I think what's very interesting is, is this uh, link between Merkel's need to deliver on the European stage and her political survival within Germany. And maybe we can go around and look at some of the other countries um, and, and how they seem to be playing with this new political balance of power in the European Union. Sylvia, um, the Italian, new Italian Prime Minister uh, Conte was in Berlin uh, yesterday. What was the, the result of, uh, of his meeting with Berlin? And, and does he kind of feel that the balance of power has changed within Europe as well? Well, Mark, yes. Uh, Conte was in Berlin yesterday. This meeting follows another meeting that he had before with Macron. And uh, the result, as they said, uh, was a good meeting. Uh, there were different uh, topics on the table. Uh, I don't think uh, he wants to express uh, any personal uh, position on uh, on the internal domestic uh, problems uh, of uh, of Germany, and rightly so. I think uh, they wanted to send a message of cooperation, and uh, basically they dealt. I mean, the the, the meeting was about uh, migration and uh, they decided to come out uh, uh, together, to work together on a comprehensive package in order especially to avoid the collapse of Schengen. Uh, let's say that from a media point of view, what was really shocking 
was the ultimatum that uh, Seehofer gave to Angela Merkel and the very fact that the Schengen uh, could the Schengen could collapse out of uh, a collapse a potential collapse of the German government or anyway out of uh, this decision of returning migrants uh, entering uh, Germany uh, they both said that they do their best to avoid bilateral initiatives. So I guess they are taking ownership of this process and maybe there are some references uh, to their respective home interior ministers. And also Conte asked for a strong solidarity mechanism. He stressed the fact that Italian borders are European borders meaning that as soon as a third nationality person enters Italy, it means it has, he has or she has entered the European Union. What does yeah. he want by solidarity? Is it more money or is it uh, people being given to other countries so that other countries take their fair share of refugees? Or is he trying to get some kind of read across from the refugee issue to the Euro issue? Well, this is a very good question, Mark, because, uh, you know, there is uh, the old solidarity thing, but there is very much a trade-off with resources and money. And uh, I also think uh, that uh, this government has, you know, a guy who is playing the bad role, uh, which, of course, is uh, Salvini. And then uh, there is Conte, who is, uh, you know, the milder and the more open person and the person who, who leaders can talk to. But uh, this discussion, this conversation the two leaders had yesterday was not only on migration. It was also on the multi-annual financial framework, the 2021-2027. And uh, basically what Conte did was asking for resources uh, to implement labor policies to address youth unemployment in Italy and to reduce uh, social exclusion. This basically means the basic income initiative from the Five Star Movement that everybody says it has not financial coverage. So basically, it's uh, it's a, all everything is on a trade-off basis. You know, I don't want migrants in Italy and look at the Aquarius uh, issue what happened last week and with the sheep that was not for the first time ever a sheep uh, full of migrants was not given uh, the permission to dock into uh, Italian ports and we know that it reached then uh, Spain and the port of Valencia. So, uh, yeah. Two quick questions which come out of that. One is, if you are uh, Matteo Salvini, who has basically made your reputation on being tough on migration, you've turned away the Aquarius ship, why would you agree to sign a deal with Germany that would allow mean that you had to take back people who made their way to Germany from Italy? And secondly, do you think that ultimately Salvini and Conte would rather 
do a deal with a weak Merkel and try and get some extra money or different types of solidarity? Or do you think that they'd rather um, try and destroy her with Salvini, uh, sorry, with Seehofer in the same way that, that Merkel um, uh, and uh, Sarkozy um, ended up uh, getting rid of Berlusconi? Well, on your first question, I think Salvini will never, ever allow migrants who reach Germany to come back to Italy. This would be a total political disaster for him uh, at the domestic level, um, meaning not only uh, you are allowing migrants entering the territory of, it of Italy, but also migrants who were in Germany were refused there and they go back to Italy. This is uh, inconceivable for you know, the policies and the politics uh, that Salvini put in place. So I don't think this will ever happen. In terms of uh, weakening Merkel, um, well, Salvini was very outspoken on uh, Germany more than Merkel, but uh, on Germany uh, and uh, its austerity measures. I would say that the five-star movement, uh, which, by the way, Conte represents mostly uh, never really had uh, a, an argument against uh, Germany. So I don't think uh, there is any idea of weakening Merkel. And I think it is very premature to say, uh, I think they want to wait uh, to see what happens uh, in, in these two weeks, uh, which are so determinant for Merkel. So maybe before we come to to France um, and find out what, what Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel have been talking about. It might be worth talking to the other part of this new European power axis, which is the sort of Poland-Hungary bit. Piotr, what, how do you see things from Warsaw? What do you think um, Orban and Kaczynski and others make of what's going on? Do they see an opportunity here to to either fatally weaken Merkel or to, to change the debate in a fundamental way? So I think, you know, <clears throat> the question of the political future of, of Angela Merkel is key. And from the Polish perspective, at least, um, I think, uh, or the, from the perspective of the Polish government, it is a very ambiguous picture because I think in the short term, um, weakening Merkel is not a good thing, um, even uh, if you consider the fact that the relations between Poland and Germany are not in very good shape, there is lack of trust, um, the, the Polish government uh, has uh, um, attacked uh, Merkel in Germany uh, many times over the last uh, years, uh, two years, and uh, perhaps it has, uh, this criticism has softened uh, over the last months since we have a new new prime minister and new foreign minister, but still uh, there is a lack of trust and the relations are not in good shape. But Merkel remains uh, a guarantor from the perspective of Poland of a unified Europe. So she is clearly one of the few leaders who really care about uh, European leaders, who really care about the European unity and has, um, until recently at least, has had the power to to maintain Europe's unity despite all these cleavages, all these divisions, tensions between the Eurozone and the rest and, and, and other, other division lines. So uh, losing Merkel uh, would mean that the policy uh, of Marco Zöder or, or Viktor Orban 
would become a, a sort of uh, standard policy in Europe. And this, the, the words by Söder, who, who talked about the end of the of multilateralism in Europe, um, I think this is a warning sign. And I think in this kind of Europe, even the PIS government would not feel very comfortable. So this is the so so this is the one one side. But the other side is, of course, that the long term. The crisis of of Merkel and and um, the fact that um, people like Zehofer, Söder, Kurz, uh, Orban, um, perhaps Salvini even could play a more important role in in the European politics, and that their political line would be uh, dominating more and more the, the European politics, would mean that, for example, all these conflicts over the rule of law in with with the current Polish government would basically lose its relevance because uh, they, they, I, I, I don't think those leaders would care very much about um, these issues, which are at the moment extremely important for the, for the Polish government. So the, the question of the, of the rule of law is overshadowing our relations with our key partners. It's, um, it's posing a huge problem for the uh, budgetary negotiations and in, in many other dimensions. It's, it's, it's a reason why, why Poland has become a country marginalized in the European, uh, on the European scene. So, so I think it, it, my point is that behind this crisis of Merkel in, or of the German coalition, looms uh, a, a much bigger crisis of um, of European politics and perhaps a major shift within the um, conservative camp, Christian democratic camp, which would have far-reaching implications for uh, for all countries in Europe, but, but especially for those who represent those uh, national conservative values and which are now uh, seen as uh, marginal or, or you know, uh, being somehow sidelined um, in the EU, and they may more and more become of a mainstream in um, in Europe. And the discussion, very interesting discussion about the law and justice, the Polish ruling party possibly uh, seeking for membership in the European People's Party, which looks as something completely absurd at the moment, could become a, a real things develop um, in into this direction. So I think this is the, the, the bigger picture where perhaps uh, the wind is blowing into the direction which is actually quite welcome uh, by the by the Polish government and clearly Viktor uh, Orban in Hungary. I think that's one of the interesting questions because in the past people were saying that Orban should be kicked out of the EPP and now they're saying that, that Kaczynski should be allowed in. But presumably... Um, Civic Platform uh, would have a veto on that happening. Yeah, I mean, Civic Platform wouldn't be very happy about that uh, for sure. But uh, I think in the end, uh, the numbers will matter. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, the, the, the key uh, goal of the EPP at the moment is to, um, and the main rationale behind many um, steps taken by the party also with regard to Orban is to, to become the largest political grouping in um, in the in the European Parliament after the next year elections, and uh, I think some members of the EPP are ready to pay 
quite a high price uh, uh, for it. Uh, and I think for it also refers to part of the CDU, certainly not to, to, uh, to the people around Merkel, but I think there are um, uh, politicians also in the CDU who would uh, seriously consider such an option if it was necessary. But I think in the end, uh, this, uh, this discussion is insofar interesting that it could lead um, even an, an attempt to, to invite uh, law and justice uh, by this national conservative part of the EPP um, to, to the party uh, could be a source of a major conflict within the EPP and perhaps some, some parties could even uh, quit the EPP. And that, again, would have implications also for, the, for other uh, movements on the European scene, like, for example, Macron's efforts to build a pan-European uh, network, so uh, European en marche. So it could be a, 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 a start of a reshuffling of the whole European uh, political scene, which is, uh, of course, a very, very fascinating <laughs> development and is, is somehow originating in this not only originating, but with with the Germany, with Germany and the German coalition crisis being one of the main main factors, the triggers of all this process. So you you talked about Emmanuel Macron there. Um, he uh, has been uh, running to the rescue and is helping uh, Angela Merkel get out of her crisis by meeting her in in Meseburg, the German presidential, uh, sorry, prime, chancellor's retreat uh, just outside the German capital. Um, what do you think um, he is hoping to get out of this meeting? What is he going to offer to Angela Merkel? I, it's, it's very striking to see um, the contrast between all what you've described and the fact that in France, this meeting in Meseberg was basically... Uh, uh, focused on on eurozone, where, which is obviously an issue where the the perspective is that it's for Germany to offer something to France rather than for France to offer something for uh, Germany. So obviously, people have followed this uh, very uh, striking crisis that you see currently uh, unfolding in Germany. Uh, it it may be interesting to notice that there is actually kind of the same kind of political crisis within the main conservative party, Les Républicains, uh, where the number two of the party has just been sacked by the party leader, Laurent Vauquier, precisely because they disagreed on a kind of a more populist anti-migrant uh, rhetoric that the leader has used and the number two has disagreed with. Uh, she disagreed. He decided to, uh, to uh, sack her. Uh, but obviously in the French system, uh, Les Républicains right now are not in power and uh, La République en Marche and Macron have most of the leverages you need to, to govern. So this does not bear the same kind of consequences, but it does say something about the new political context that you have uh, across Europe uh, and certainly need just, not just in the east of Europe as some of us uh, uh, in uh, in Western Europe have uh, comfortably thought uh, maybe for, for too long. Macron is aware that there, this is high stake. Uh, it's high stake for Merkel and it's high stake for him. Um, immigration obviously is an issue in France also, but it's not the key issue. The key issue for Macron is 
whether Merkel is going to stay around as a valid and leading partner in the EU for Macron to be able to deliver on his promises, um, the promises that he made on his very pro-European agenda during the campaign and during his first year in government. And already there is the sense that a lot of time has uh, passed and not much has happened. Not nothing, but not much. And part of the reason why not much has happened is because of Germany. First, because you had the election, that you had the coalition negotiation, which first started with the Liberal Democrat Party, then with the SPD. Uh, and then even once you had a coalition, the German response uh, took some time. And it eventually came uh, with Merkel uh, not exactly saying yes to everything that Macron was uh, waiting for. But I don't think Macron was realistically expecting Merkel to agree on everything. But at least that could have been the start of a, of a negotiation, of a discussion, a start of a momentum. And with the European Council happening in less than two weeks now, uh, this Meserberg uh, meeting was supposed to be kind of paving the way for uh, this European Council outcome as kind of first steps towards uh, moving towards what Macron uh, had in mind. And if you look at the way the French uh, media have uh, talked about what is coming out from Meserberg, they insist much more on the idea that the fact that Merkel has agreed on the uh, so-called agreed on the uh, has agreed on the so-called, sorry, uh, Eurozone budget, much more than on migration. But on migration, I think Macron is aware that uh, he needs to help Merkel with finding a solution. That's actually going absolutely uh, in favor, uh, in support of uh, Macron's own interest and own politics. Macron's, there's, there's a contrast between what Macron was saying during the campaign on migration and what he's doing right now in France. And a lot of even his, some of his closest supporters or campaign advisors have pointed that contrast. Uh, and one of the rationale that the, the Macron people give to explain that contrast is that precisely you need a European solution. You need some uh, further European coordination, especially on asylum seeking and also on reinforcing the control of uh, Europe's uh, external borders to be able to be more generous and to reorganize solidarity within Europe. And so Macron is in favor of uh, this kind of solidarity approach, but it can't, as he sees it, it cannot be unilateral. It cannot be some of us are generous and the rest behave as they want, which is why he has insisted so much on the fact that it's not uh, acceptable that some countries would not accept the quotas, which is also why, by the way, Sylvia mentioned the uh, Aquarius uh, 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 case, which is also why France has not uh, uh, stepped uh, out in terms of uh, saying we could have that boat docking in a French harbor, but rather waited for Spain to take the initiative to then come in support uh, of Spain and say we can help Spain resettle those, uh, those people. So I think Macron clearly wants to help Merkel. I don't think he was the most difficult partner that Merkel has uh, when she tries to find a solution on, uh, on immigration. Uh, and also he has other priorities. So the, the solution is not, coming to, is not going to come from uh, the result of today's uh, meeting. I think what's very interesting about what you just said is, is how much Europe has changed over the last few days. Because, um, you know, a year ago, people were hoping that there would be a Franco-German motor and they were dreaming of the sorts of declarations that you're talking about. But now 
it looks much more like a Franco-German bunker than a, than a motor. And the political momentum is not with France and it's not with Angela Merkel, but seems to be more with Seehofer, with the Italians and with these other, these other political movements. How worried is Macron about that? Well, he's, he's worried because that jeopardizes his world strategies. World strategy is based on the fact that uh, not only uh, is Merkel key, and so the fact that Merkel is weakened is the problem. And even if the outcome of a potential political crisis in Germany would be that you still have some uh, good pro-European uh, German leadership, which obviously is not a given, uh, you would still lose time. And Macron is, uh, as, as you can see from what he's done uh, since uh, since two years, for the last two years, uh, he's not really uh, very patient. But even if Merkel is key and Germany is key, he's also aware that the Franco-German axis, uh, the Franco-German engine is not enough to pull uh, all of Europe. And so part of his strategy is to focus on uh, differentiated Europe, flexible Europe, multi-speed Europe. But part of his strategy is still to go and build coalitions beyond this kind of Franco-German basis for agreements and, and to get a, a critical mass of countries moving ahead, whether it's migration, whether it's the Eurozone, whether it's defense, and it doesn't have to be the same coalition, but you need some strong critical mass coalition to move ahead. Right now, the problem is that he, he has uh, challenges on both fronts of, of that strategy. Right. So um, I suppose we should go back to Josef now and find out whether Angela Merkel is going to survive, whether there is going to be a partner for Macron in this or whether... Uh, this is uh, the beginning of a kind of slow death for, for Angela Merkel as a political leader and the sort of Germany that she has incarnated in her dozen or so years as, as, as Chancellor. Well, I would say, Mark, uh, never underestimate uh, Merkel's uh, uh, endurance. You know, I think uh, uh, she, would be, she would be dead many times if she wasn't um, uh, tough and if she wasn't persistent. Uh, I also have some difficulties with the bunker analogy. Uh, I do see both Germany and France um, reaching out to other member states, and even more so now that they have, after uh, a quite long time, um, straightened out their common agenda. And uh, if I'm uh, reading correctly what the French president and the German chancellor have just been uh, saying about their meeting in Meseberg is that they have reaffirmed their common agenda and they have uh, shown that they have made a compromise. And this compromise has um, elements uh, that are important for both in it. And there is no shortage of messages from Macron uh, about his solidarity with Merkel also uh, uh, with regard to the migration issue. In my view, uh, I think there, there may be people around um, seeking to, to benefit from weakening European unity. And I can see such a rationale um, 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 unfolding in uh, East Central Europe, uh, but it is a rather short-term one. When I look at the Italian situation, however, um, I do not share um, Silvia's analysis about the impossibility for Salvini to uh, agree to, a, uh, to an agreement. You know, I think Italy has um, a threefold interest. Um, Italy wants money uh, to de better deal with the um, flow of migrants and the, the uh, efforts uh, to patrol the border. Italy wants political support to reach out effectively to neighbors across the Mediterranean. 
and Italy wants uh, relief in terms of the number of migrants in the country. So if Merkel uh, can deliver uh, through a bilateral agreement an interim uh, solution to a later European package that would give Italy money without the insistence of other Europeans to then also have a say on how Italy patrols its borders, that would give Italy political support and that would give uh, Italy the assurance that Germany would take in um, uh, um, accepted asylum seekers and accepted refugees after they have gone through the Italian asylum system uh, in a relocation scheme uh, to Germany in return for Italy's um, uh, readiness to uh, accept back um, migrants that have uh, arrived in Italy, applied for asylum there, but have not waited for their um, case to be settled, but rather traveled on to Germany uh, and then are returned to Italy. I think that is a package that would be perfectly doable uh, for Salvini if he would look at the numbers and not at the ideology of it. So I still believe that there is some, some chance that we will see this. Macron uh, has made a reference to, to that situation and has made it very clear that France, uh, uh, regarding this aspect, is clearly on the side of Germany there. Uh, and I think that uh, Orban and Kaczynski uh, are, are not the best bedfellows for uh, Salvini and Di Maio there because they don't want uh, anything to do with the migration issue. They just want to uh, keep the migrants out of their own country, uh, which, which uh, uh, may be sympathetic for the Lega, but it doesn't help Italy. So what do you, what do you think, um, uh, Sylvia, of the chances yeah. are? I wanted to, to reply to this. Uh, Last point I very much share in the sense that uh, the Visegrad countries are not those who are going to help Italy, of course, in the Mediterranean crisis, refugees or migrant crisis or emergency or whatever phenomenon. Uh, that's for sure. It's not there that they should look at. Uh, it's, uh, it's more uh, to France, to Germany, etc. On the other hand, uh, Josef, you are right, and, and what you said makes a lot of sense, but the old campaign by Salvini was not driven by facts, but rather ideology. And to be honest, I don't see, I mean, it's only the start of the government, only a few days the government is in, but I still see a lot of campaigning language. We are still in a campaigning mood for Salvini, and uh, I can't see this switch yet. This can only happen through the Five Star Movement, but I don't see this happening from Salvini. Okay, so we'll have to look out over the next couple of weeks to see how Angela Merkel does in her attempt both to build these bilateral deals with countries like uh, Italy and uh, Bulgaria and Austria, uh, but also what's going to happen at the European Council and whether there will be a European solution. And we can, uh, we can come back and, um, and see whether your predictions about Angela Merkel's resilience are borne out by the facts um, uh, in future podcasts. But 
I think we've run out of time for, for this discussion now. We have one last thing to do, which is the, the bookshelf segment. Um, Josef, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? There are plenty of things on my bookshelf, but honestly, Mark, I'm so preoccupied with the current issues that I can't even remember the title of the little book that I'm reading. It's by a French author, and it's, a, it's an interesting uh, a way of telling historical stories. I, I tell you more about it next time, but you know, I'm, I'm so away from my, my desk uh, uh, at this point that I even, even don't recall the name of the author. Okay, what about you, Sylvia? Oh, I'm reading. I, I also have quite a few books and I move from one to another, but uh, currently is a small book which is called The Miracle of Mindfulness by Zen Monk Tignatan. Okay, and what about you, uh, Piotr? You know, since the times are quite gloomy, I decided to go for for um, Utopia for Realist and how we can get there by Rutger Bregman, a Dutch author, which is a very encouraging book showing that uh, building a new society and a new future is possible. So I think at least something optimistic. Okay, and um, Manuel? Well, it's not really optimistic because Piazza <laughs> was really never optimistic, but I'm reading all uh, Piasner works. He, he, he's a great French thinker on international relations, and he died a few days ago. And I, I've been reading avidly his latest book, which is the La Revanche des Passions, The Revenge of Passions in uh, International Affairs. And that's quite uh, a timely reading. But I must say that everything he wrote in the early 90s, when everybody was speaking about end of history, and it was quite accurately pointing to the kind of things that we see now about identity, inequality, borders, etc. is uh, is really uh, even more striking now than when I read it first uh, at the time it was published. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, that book is uh, is an incredible piece of prophecy. Actually, he, uh, he described very uh, brilliantly all the stuff that we've been living through over the last couple of years. Um, my own um, uh, recommendation is an, uh, a book review in the London Review of Books of Yasha Munk's uh, latest book, but it's written by Pankaj Mishra, who pushes back on a lot of the um, what he sees as sort of Western-centric ideas about, uh, about democracy. It's a very interesting book. We'll put up links to all of the above on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Josef Janning, Piotr Barras, Sylvia Francescon, Manuel Lafont-Amnoui, and myself, Mark Leonard, served me right having so many people on the podcast. It's goodbye. The research of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Harkenbrage, and our editor is Katharina Botel-Azzinaro.